Welcome listeners to another podcast episode sponsored by the Skillman Church of Christ on the topic of Church of Christ. And uh, episode one was a fantastic interview uh, with my dad, uh, Kelly Davidson. In fact, we have part two for you here. But with me, before we press play, here with me is my coworker, the executive minister here at the Skillman Church of Christ, Jake Jacobson. I wanted to get his uh, his take on uh, part one of this particular episode. Jake, first of all, how are you doing? And uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the beginning of this conversation? Oh yeah, hey, hey thanks for inviting me to, to, to share for a couple minutes. Um, obviously, uh, for, for a lot of us, we spent, we spent a lot of time in the churches of Christ. Uh, you know, not everybody, but uh, people in the churches of Christ tend to be, uh, you know, possibly Church of Christ for lifers, you know, and, and people who have been in the churches of Christ. A lot of us have been in the churches of Christ for the majority of our lives. And uh, so, you know, dedicating some time to this topic is, is a phenomenal uh, use of our time. And especially, uh, I know down the road, you know, some of the questions that you're going to be asking is, where are we going? And uh, what, what is what's possible for the churches of Christ in today's world? And uh, it's a great, great conversation. You know, as I was thinking about the, the part one, uh, like you said, uh, one of the things that is so impressive to me is your family history. <laughs> you know, oh, man. You, what, what was it, your great-great-granddad? Was yeah, a Church of Christ priester? I think you know? so, man. It's crazy. It's crazy how, how far it goes back. Yeah, it's a perfect example of uh, you know people in the Church of Christ. Like a lot of us have been here mm-hmm. for either our entire lifetime or even yeah. generation after generation. Exactly. And uh, the questions before us today, and some of the stuff that I'm sure we're uh, we're going to encounter in part two uh, with with the interview with your dad, is uh, you know the world has changed a lot mm-hmm. since the Church of Christ was founded. Yes. And yet, in some ways, the Church of Christ. Uh, we have the ability to maneuver mm-hmm. and to adapt to face these challenges that uh, that are coming up, uh, that are already going on. And so uh, I'm excited to hear part two. Yes, and as you probably noticed, uh, you know this was one phone call with my dad that I recorded, and we initially were supposed to talk for about 30, 40 minutes, but the conversation went so well that it ended up being an hour. And so on the last minute, I abruptly decided, hey, let's let's make it to two uh, two episodes instead of one. And so it did. Seemed the ending was a little bit abrupt last time, but uh, that's because it was a, a last-minute decision. But we ended part one, me asking him some of the challenges that the Churches of Christ face, and and uh, now we get to listen to his response and the discussion that follows. So I'm gonna go ahead and press play, and uh, let's enjoy this episode. Looking at the world that we live in today, 2021, and with your experience within the Churches of Christ, what would you say are the challenges that we face? Yeah, and I. <clears throat> That's a great question, John Mark, and I don't know that I'm all, I'm going to be able to really uh, do anything but just start a discussion about this because this certainly is something that a lot of people who are a lot smarter and more experienced than I am that are that are trying to tackle as well. But really, churches of Christ, like most Christian uh, groups and churches here in the United States, are experiencing a decline. And it's going to be interesting to see how we come out of this year-long COVID experience where we've been so separated. It's going to be interesting to see how we respond to that. And I'm hoping that we're just doing a lot of praying about uh, our future as we begin to make an impact on our community once we come back together again. But one of the things that, uh, that I've noticed about being part of the restoration movement is the DNA that comes along with the phrase restoration, having restoration as a goal. 
And I think that as it started back in, uh, you know, in the early days of our country, this idea of restoration was so noble. It was wonderful. It, uh, it drove us to an excitement and a commitment that was wonderful to unite together and to restore this, this excitement that the early church had for being together with each other, for planning churches, for being Jesus's disciples. And, and it drove us to a high value of, of this, looking at the scripture with a high value of speaking where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible's silent, mm-hmm. to say Bible things in Bible ways. The, the phrase, God said it, I believe it, that settles mm-hmm. it, you know, was part of this movement. <laughs> yeah. But what, what we noticed, began to notice, I think historians have pointed out that, that in the early, ni- late 50s and early 1960s, the movement the, began to change somewhat. And you mentioned it earlier that we moved from being Christians only movement to a movement that we consider ourselves to be the only Christians. And in effect, we were no longer a restoration movement because we had restored. The idea was that we had restored the one true church. And if we were the one true church, then everybody else was an offshoot of that. They, mm. they, were, uh, not the, they were not a church of Christ, so to speak. Mm. Mm. And so I think that maybe what happened was that back years ago when, when Campbell and Stone started this movement and there was this unity movement that, that began, they... they centered the unity part of the movement on the scripture and Mm. an interpretation of the scripture Mm. and the text. And I think that that was really good in one sense, but it had an, it had a a negative as well because Mm. we were centering it on a text and an interpretation of a text, as opposed to centering it on Jesus Christ and him crucified mm. and the resurrected Lord. And I think that over the decades, you know, that followed that this movement began to move further and further away from this unity, mm. uh, this, this, this goal of unity that it started off with. And it began to, to be seen more and more as, as a movement that was, uh, restoring a a particular type of christianity and uh, what we would call the the one true church and and i think that what happened back in you know with, with the united states constitution mm-hmm. the united states has more lawyers than any other country in the world by far that's right and it's because we have a constitution and and so we we make decisions based on that law mm-hmm. and i wonder i wonder if maybe we as a fellowship as we begin to move further and further along in time we used our study of the scripture more like lawyers to prove mm-hmm. that we're right than mm-hmm. we used it as the you know the hebrew the writer of hebrews says that the word of god is living and active and sharper than two, any two-edged sword mm-hmm. we we've we visualized the sword as what we were carrying as the church instead of the sword being what the Holy spirit was using to cut our heart mm. and to help us become more and more like Jesus and molding us into his image. 
Mm. And so some things that I noticed as I look back, um, I, I remember thinking that the preaching and the teaching that I heard while I was, you know, growing up in, in, in my childhood and teenage years was probably more along the line of proof texting to where we would, the preacher would give a, a topic and then he would just give lots and lots of scriptures that would prove mm. that that topic was in the Bible or what the Bible said about that topic. Mm. And uh, while that's really, really great for getting a wide angle view of the scripture, that type of Bible study is not very uh, helpful in setting up doctrine. And so mm. things like proof texting and mm. uh, the, the uh, going back and being taking just the simple New Testament church mm meant that many times we really didn't emphasize training very much. Mm. If you, if you compare, for instance, what my dad did before he went as a missionary to Thailand to what you did before you went as a missionary to Peru, it's day, it's daylight and dark. Mm. And, uh, there was, there was um, intense training that was part of your experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas my dad just decided, Hey, I think we need to go and be missionaries in Thailand. And he was just led by the Holy spirit. And one day he announced that we're all going in the next, you know, just a couple months later, we were on the plane headed to Asia. Wow. And so that was part of it. But, uh, I, I feel like that this change started post-World War II mm. and really began to uh, be part of our church culture and starting around in the 1960s. So that's interesting. Um, it really is, you know, especially when you think about, you know, this movement starting as a unity, non-denominational movement. But then over time, over time, you know, as we've seen, you know, universities pop up uh, like you have Abilene Christian, you have David Lipscomb, you have Hardin Simmons, uh, you know, you freed Hardeman. Oh, sorry, Hardin Simmons is not. Sorry, I, mean, I meant freed Hardeman. Uh, but you have these universities, uh, preaching schools, uh, you have the Christian uh, the publication, what was that called? That was a magazine, uh, Christian Chronicle, Firm Christian, Foundation, Firm Foundation, you know, and so, you know, uh, little by little, you know, with these teaching institutions, some of the theological teachings are becoming normalized. Uh, some of the interpretations are saying, well, this is, this is the only way to interpret this text. And I think over time, uh, it seemed as though that anyone who believed or interpreted a, a particular verse in a different way, uh, maybe wasn't, as included within the community as those that had uh, the same line of thinking, uh, which you know led to some of the the issues of the 50s and 60s, where there's a little bit of a poor reputation uh, with some people about the Church of Christ and their sectarian nature, um, which is interesting how it began, where where it went, but you know also uh, where we are today, you know, and that's interesting. Yeah. Any, anything else comes to mind as far as challenges uh, with where we are today? Well. Yeah, I wanted to just kind of build on that because one of the things that took place is that not only did we begin to look at other denominations and other churches as not being true churches of Christ, we then began to also have lots and lots of church splits from within our own movement, which left many, many uh, Christians wounded. And uh, it, it was it was sad in many cases when as a college minister here, when 
we would have new students come in and, and I always like to ask them about their church and what, what was, what was their church like? And in so many cases, the, they would tell about the church splits mm. and how there was a Sunday night when the people started shouting at each other and one group got up and just walked out and they went and started a new church. And sadly that is all too common in in our fellowship. And I think that we need to recognize that we need to realize that that's not what we were. uh, That's not what we were in the past. And that's not what we need to be in the future as well. It's almost almost uh, like in in an effort, we almost became a denomination in some senses uh, with, with unspoken creeds. We didn't have them written down as far as, you know, some others like the Lutherans or the Methodists or, you know, these creeds, but, in some ways, a movement that began as a non-denominational movement, you know, inadvertently, and I think, you know, un- unintentionally, I don't think it was anyone's goal, but over time, I think organizations tend to, to do this, begin to normalize certain behaviors and institutionalize, you know, certain teachings. And inadvertently, I think we became another denomination who didn't think they were, but we really were with some unspoken creeds um, that kind of united, you know, those churches. But Interesting that uh, you bring that yeah. up. Yeah, and I, I feel like that we look at the past, but if we dwell in the past, it'll be just, it'll make us uh, depressed. I think that right now we need to be looking at the future and mm. we need to take those great uh, feelings, those great practices, those great ideals that our movement started with and let that propel us into a, a future Mm-hmm. But I, f- I feel like there's some things that we need to recognize about our movement um, a- as we begin to move forward. Uh, it- it's interesting that right now, this particular year, 2021, our particular church, the AM Church of Christ, is celebrating its 100th anniversary. It's the 100th wow. year of existence. Man. That in, in 1921, our church began on the campus at Texas AM in the YMCA building as a group of students would come in and, and there was a professor who was uh, part of the churches of Christ movement that met with other church of Christ students. And so that's how our church began. Mm-hmm. But because it's the hundredth year, we're trying to decide uh, what are some things that we can do to make sure that our church is still going to be uh strong and vibrant and lively 30 years from now, and maybe even 50 years from now, what can we do right now that would make it so that our church can celebrate 200 years Mm. and not just be satisfied with one. And so we've been having some uh, interesting conversations. And, and I think that one of the things that, that has become evident to me is that this concept of a, restoration movement, I think, is something that we've got to reconcile and really talk about as mm-hmm. we move forward into the future. Yes. Because, because if you think about it, the, restora- the restoration movement took place in a Christian culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It took place in a culture where there were Baptists, there were Methodists, there were, there were, uh, uh, Presbyterians, there were Anabaptists, the list goes on and on. And so the movement became, became 
let's not be all these separate groups. Let's just be Christians. Yeah. And so the, the idea of restoring actually made sense yeah. in a Christian culture. Now yeah. I saw this, it really, it really was something that I noticed as I went to Thailand, which is a Buddhist country as someone who'd grown up in a restoration movement and was trying to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to non-Christian culture. Yes. And so, so I realized pretty quickly that my message needed to be different. Mm. That the way that I introduced the gospel needed to be different. Mm. And so this was something that I, that really kind of started me thinking about this, yes. that if we yes. see ourselves as a restoration movement, in order to really restore something, you have to already have something exist existing. Yes. If yes. you're going to restore a table, for instance, this piece of furniture, You've got to start with a table. You can't restore a table if you don't even have a, a table. <laughs> yeah, it's just so interesting, you know, because re restoration has the implication of like like a correction. Like there's it's, it's it's there, but it's kind of gone off track, and so you're kind of bringing it back to its original intent. You're restoring to what it was, but like you said, in, a, in an Asian context where the name of Jesus, you know, this is the first time they've heard about this guy. You know, this 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 Jewish rabbi 2000 years ago named Jesus, how does a, how can you restore something that hasn't existed, which is interesting that you bring up. Yeah. And, and so these slogans, this, these, these identity slogans that we've had in the past, that we're a group that speaks where the Bible speaks and we're silent where the Bible's silent. That makes sense in a Christian culture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if you take this to a non-Christian culture, if you're saying this in Thailand, that's a Buddhist country, and you go in and you say, we think that you need to follow us because we want to speak where the Bible speaks and we want to be silent where the Bible's silent. We want to do Bible things in Bible ways. They look at you like, so what? <laughs> because they don't even believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. They don't even believe that there's a God. Mm. And so for that to be our starting point, as a movement mm. is not going to work in a non-Christian culture like it has in the past with a Christian culture. Interesting. And so interesting. I think, I think that, that as we look at that, then we've got as churches, we've got to begin to, to retrain everybody that's part of the church on how do we take the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus to a non-Christian audience to a non-Christian mm. culture, maybe even sometime, you know, uh, it may even be not just a non-Christian culture. It could be, you know, in our future at some point being an anti-Christian culture. Yes. How do we take the gospel of Jesus Christ to that particular culture? So, so how do you become a, a Christ follower? Mm. You know, if I look back in my, if I look back in my, my past, mm -hmm. I heard a lot about baptism. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And the message was really heavily centered on baptism. And I think that that's good. But as I began to analyze this, I began to realize that the reason that baptism was emphasized so much is that everybody else in that culture, in a Christian culture, they all know already about Jesus. 
They already, in many cases, they've been going to other churches even. Yes. And yes. so what we wanted them to see was that in the scriptures, that Jesus followers were baptized as they began to follow Jesus as their, mm. as their Lord and as, as their Savior. And I actually heard one time someone uh, say this. He said, well, and, and it was probably tongue in cheek a little bit, but he said, well, we'll let the Baptists convert them to Jesus and then we'll baptism, we'll baptize them and Jesus will then add them to our church, you know, oh, and <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there was this, there was this idea that our role was to correct uh, some of the errors that other groups had maybe uh, fallen into in the mm-hmm. way that they interpreted the scripture. That's and really- so I, I really, I really think that we need to do a better job of training our members, training our churches on how they can take the gospel to a non-Christian friend or family member, uh, recognizing that our, our culture is no longer a Christian culture. Wow. I think you've hit on something very profound here. And I think I'm really glad that we're able to kind of hear this. This is very insightful. And if you think about it as well, about, you know, when, when did it begin this sectarian, the reputation of a sectarian Church of Christ kind of began, what, in the 1950s and 60s? And this, that's what we know of. But if you think during that era, like you brought up, you know, I think the percentage is like 80% of Americans uh, that were uh, that were taking censuses back then, you know, that were, were a part of a church. You know, no, the question was didn't whether you did not go to church or not. The question was, which church did you go to? And so if you think about the churches of Christ, just the emphasis that we put on baptism, adult immersion, uh, taking communion every Sunday, you know, we have all the, the verses, uh, even acapella singing is one of them. We, we know all the verses that can support it. We can defend it. But like you said, uh, in a lot of ways, maybe the intentions of that at the beginning, during that era was to prove that we were right and everyone else was wrong. And so we became experts in that because the you know the baptists the methodists the lutherans they did things a little different but we kind of you know everyone's kind of jockeying it you know i don't think that church of christ were the only ones i mean i i think that uh, we know the church of christ because that's our heritage but i've talked to friends who come from a baptist uh, you know methodist we're all guilty of at some point of these sort of sectarian ideas and teachings because in that environment it was a pretty competitive uh national domestic discussion about who was right and who was wrong about certain theological uh, discussions. Uh, it's really interesting uh, that you bring that up. Yeah. And everybody thinks that they're right. You wouldn't be, you wouldn't be a part of a group that you actually just totally disagreed with and exactly. said, well, I'm just with you. And so everybody thinks that they were right. I, I just think that we had different approaches to it. And, and it's important for us to recognize that what began as a restoration movement, it all, it began in a Christian culture and the cultures changed. I, I look at the New Testament church and I realized that the New Testament church had to deal with a changing culture as well. Mm. The changing culture didn't necessarily come in the same place over time, but it did take place in geographical uh, with, in, with geographical change. And so the church began in Jerusalem, but as it moved to Antioch and then as it moved on 
further west into what was then known as Asia and to Ephesus and Corinth mm. and eventually to Rome, the churches that were there were way different than the churches in Jerusalem. And so right. many of the challenges that Paul faced was how do you get a church, a body of Christ that included <laughs> that included people with strong Jewish beliefs mm. who had who had become Messianic Jews, so to speak. They still kept their Jewish identity, but they saw Jesus as, as the fulfillment of what was, take, what was pro- prophesied by the prophets and foretold uh, in, in many different ways in the Old Testament scriptures. And then you brought in brand new Christians who before that were pagans mm-hmm. and yes. they were Gentiles. And then you put them together in one body. And Mm. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he says, it's through Jesus Christ that the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down because Mm. they are one church. And and that unity is based on Jesus Christ alone. And so I see that the New Testament church, they had to adapt. They had to change. They had to sacrifice strong allegiance to dietary restrictions to things like circumcision mm-hmm. as the church moved from a heavily Jewish context in Jerusalem to a mixed context mm-hmm. in other places as well. And so I feel like for us, we need to recognize that the culture is changing as well. Yeah. And we need to take measures on what we can do as we, as we adapt to a changing culture and move forward into the future. That's good. You know, and, and hear me out on this because, you know, I, I might I might be barking down the wrong tree. So you can we can talk about this a little more. But I, I wonder if this is an opportunity as well for us to redefine what restoration means, uh, because I think the idea of restoration from what the restoration movement became uh, to to mean is restoring how church is done right. Uh, restoring the right way to do things. There's a there's a way to do it. It's, it's, this is the right way. We're going to restore it. Uh, because it's all about how we do church and uh, we have the answers. And, and again, I think that there's, there's a lot of different religious movements that fell into the same trap that the churches of Christ did. You know, I think we're not the only ones that kind of fell into this trap, but what if we take this opportunity to redefine what we are restoring? <laughs> right. Uh, I know, uh, you know, I, I, I listened to your sermon this past week. You did a good job, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but I remember uh, you mentioned at one time, one point in your sermon about emphasizing Genesis one versus, I think Genesis three. Um, you know where we where we begin, where we start reading scripture. And I was thinking, you know, what if in Genesis one is how God intended the world to be? There's harmony and intimacy with God. There, there's the way things were supposed to be. There was unity with Adam and Eve and, and God, and, and there was no shame. And it was this beautiful picture. And God looked at society. He looked at the world, looked at his, looked at his creation and said, this is good. It's very, very good. And of course, we know as the story goes, there's Genesis 3, there's, uh, there's sin and fraction. You know, there's a fraction that happens. But in, in a lot of ways, what if that is the goal of the church in some ways to reunite, to restore that Genesis one, where there's uh, that intimacy uh, with God in a harmony and rhythm with, with society. Anyway, am I working yeah. the What do you think, man? No, I, I'm right there with you. In fact, if you, I, I'm hoping that as you have these uh, future guests come on your podcast, that one of the questions you can ask them is that how, how did, uh, 
did say Barton W. Stone and mm -hmm. David Lipscomb, how did they interpret restoration versus how did uh, Alexander Campbell yeah, uh, interpret it? Because some of the readings that I've done, I'm not a historian, but I've read some of the books. It's really been fascinating to me. Lipscomb had a very, very good understanding of what the kingdom of God was supposed to be mm. in, in the big picture. And uh, so I think that your listeners would really enjoy being able to learn more about that. One of the things that Alexander Campbell did really well is that when he looked at the scripture, he divided it into different uh, dispensations. And so he had the patriarchal dispensation. He had the mosaical dispensation. He had the Christian dispensation. And, and he, he, it, he was able to bring out really good observations from each of those dispensations. One of the mistakes that I think that this is just me talking, you mm -hmm. know, from my perspective today, looking back at Campbell, I feel like one of the mistakes he made is he started the Christian dispensation in Acts chapter two and Pentecost. Mm -hmm. And so he really emphasized, how do you do church? How do you organize church? How do you solve church problems? Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you live together as a people of God? But one of the mistakes was that if you're going to have a Christian dispensation, you would think that you would want to actually start with Jesus Christ. Yeah. Exactly. And what does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to live out the kingdom of God in our world today mm. and so i think that you're right on there by talking about how can we continue to live out the kingdom of god today and let that be what we're trying to restore we're trying to restore the world back to genesis 1 and 2 just as mm. jesus prayed in the what we call the lord's prayer yeah. may your kingdom come may your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven that's good well, uh, you know, to close, I wanted to ask you, you know, do you have any words of, of wisdom from your experience? I know that as far as those that are a part of a church of Christ, you have leadership, you have, you have people who are attending, you have ministers. Um, I know that you mentioned earlier that you're having some of these conversations right now at the A&M Church of Christ about you're celebrating your 100th year, but you know, what kind of needs to happen within this body for you to be able to, to celebrate your 200th year and, and for the church to, to maintain uh, its community and its dedication to the teachings of Jesus during this time in, in a whole new world. Uh, do you have any uh, words of wisdom or anything that you think would be important to, to think about as the church of Christ faces uh, the world that we're living in today? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, I think that really we need to see ourselves as living on mission as opposed to protecting the past. Mm. And I think that so many times we are afraid of disrupting traditions, the way that we've done it in the past as, as maybe even discrediting our parents or those who were, who helped get the church started earlier but I really think that everyone would love for the church of the future to be vibrant, to be impactful in the culture. I don't think anyone wants us to preserve a museum of traditions. Mm -hmm. I think that everybody would want us to, to be a church that's alive, that's sharing the gospel, that's making a difference with where we are. And um, 
So here, here's what I think. I, I do a lot of, when I was in college ministry, and even right now, we do a lot of, of marriage preparation. And so we talk to couples that are about to get married. And one of the things we talk to them about is their, their family of origin. Mm. What are some things that, that you really like about your family of origin that you want to bring in to your new family? What are some things that maybe it didn't seem to work really well with you, with your family of origin that you don't want to bring in, you want to avoid in your, in your new family. And so the bride and the groom, they get together and they begin talking about these things and they begin to take what was good, but they begin to leave behind what was not so positive. And they begin to recreate their, their new family uh, using the best of, of what they can bring together as a couple. And I think that that's what we can do as a church, that we can really begin to look to the past and, and hold on to those really valuable and important things that gave us the identity and, and empowered us by the spirit of God to make a difference in, in where in our community and where we live and that we can continue to pray that the spirit will, will guide us. Now, the reality is the church is going to endure. Mm. That I have no fear because Jesus prophesied that the kingdom, uh, the gates of hell will not prevail. Yeah. And so I'm confident that the church is going to continue on, but God's only going to use churches, groups of people who are listening to his spirit and who are living on mission and wanting to make a difference in the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God. Kelly Davidson, everyone. This is, uh, it's no wonder why we had Kelly Davidson in episode number one. Uh, on behalf of the listeners, I want to say thank you from the depths of my heart. Thank you, uh, Dad, for opening up this discussion. You've given us a lot to think about, and uh, uh, I think we're going to have you back on. Would you mind uh, maybe in a couple of weeks or I don't know, a couple of months, we'll, we'll have you back on and maybe we give your, uh, get your insight on some of the discussions that we've had in between uh, some of the people and kind of, kind of get your thoughts. Cause I think what you've said today is profound. It's truth. It's helpful. It's hopeful. And uh, really brings us to a place of connection, connection with our heritage, but also a, uh, a hopeful uh, vision of the future to come. And uh, so thank you so much. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. This is, this is what you can expect. This is, a, this is the, the caliber of conversations that we're going to have in the coming weeks. We started out strong, but this is going to be so good. So click that subscribe button. Uh, send me an email or text. If you have a, a specific question or a part of uh, with the, among the Church of Christ, a specific question that you want to tackle and uh, an issue you want to discuss, a topic that you want to cover, but uh, again, on behalf of listeners, uh, thank you, Dad, uh, for coming. And we really appreciate your time and sharing your, your expertise and your wisdom. It's been an honor and a privilege to be part of this. And I look forward to listening to future conversations that uh, you'll be having uh, about this subject in the future as well. So thanks for having me on. All right. Much love, Dad. We'll talk soon.